0: Good morning, my friends. Welcome to Westgate Chapel. Let's, uh, let's stand up and sing to the Lord today. This, this first song is based off of uh, Psalm 24, and uh, it's, a, it's a song where we, we welcome God into this place. But it's funny because that, that Psalm 24 starts with, with this. Um, it says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, and the world and all its people belong to him. For he laid the foundations of the seas and built on the ocean depths. So he's already here. Let's welcome him in anyway. Come on. Our praise awaits you with the dawn. Our souls awake to you and lift us on. we know the best is yet to come. We know there's more to come. So open the gates and Sounds of victory. You're changing everything. So open the gates. So open
1: the gates and let your glory come down.
2: Westgate Chapel. It's great to be here and worshiping with you this morning. If I haven't met you, my name is Lydia Ericks, and I've been going here for about four and a half years. If you are new this morning, please, or if if you have prayer as well, please take a connection card in the uh, back of the pew in front of you and fill that out, drop it in the uh, offering buckets as they come around later, or take it out to our Welcome Center out front. There's a small gift uh, for you that we have for joining us this morning. Um, I'm up here this morning to remind you of a few events we have going on later this week. Uh, on Saturday, uh, 11th of February, we have the men's board game or game night that's going on. There'll be lots of board games, snacks. I hear rumors of some safe axe throwing that might be there. Um, That's five to eight uh, in the gym, Uh, but it's a come and go as you can event. So if you have to leave early or uh, come late, please come and join. I know my husband's super excited about it, so come out for that. Um, And then on Sunday next week, the 12th, we have our ministry fair. Uh, There'll be lots of popcorn and cotton candy and all sorts of fun goodies uh, for you to partake and fellowship with each other. But most importantly, we have all of our ministries that Westgate leads and facilitates and supports and partners with both here at our church and in our community for you to learn more about, connect with, see how you can get plugged in both with your time and prayer uh, and and other areas of service as well. So come on out uh, on Sunday after both services in the atrium and the W Cafe and and chat with students and kids and Westgate Cares and Outreach and Missions. So it'll be a good time. I look forward to seeing you there. I also this morning get to talk a little bit about a really cool opportunity we have this summer to take our staff a trip to English Camp with uh, our friends in Germany, the Carries. If you are new to Westgate, we've been working with the Carries and partnering with them for many years and have been sending teams to English Camp for many years as well. At English Camp, they invite the teens and students in their community to come on out and... uh, harness or or hone their English language skills, but also give them exposure to Jesus and the gospel. Uh, the teens that come have a varying background of spiritual exposure from atheists to curious about who Jesus is and, and what that all means. And, and they've seen a lot of really cool work that's been done, uh, through God at that camp. Um, I was speaking with the Carries earlier this week, and they were telling me about a student who came to English camp many years ago, who's now in the process of becoming a pastor and coming back to the church um, that they have uh, in Germany as well. So it's a really, really cool opportunity that we get to be a part of. Speaking of English camp, I brought my friend Annalise up here this morning with me. Um, she had the opportunity to go a few years ago, pre-COVID, on the uh, English camp trip, and I wanted her to come and share a little bit about her experience and and what God had Done through that.
3: Yeah. Uh, so my name is Annalise Lewis, and I went to English camp in 2019. Um, at the time, I was feeling confident about teaching English. I teach high school English, but I was really nervous about how God was going to use me to really interact with the kids. Um, a lot of the other people who went with me were like, oh, I'm just so excited to see the kids again. Um, I'm just excited to just hang out and talk with them. And I was really nervous because I uh, consider myself an introvert and I'm not strong in the hang out and talk skill set. And so I was like, okay, I was like, okay, God, I know you want me to come and, you know, I can, maybe I'll just teach English and let the other people, you know, just do those parts. I don't know how you're going to use me here, but I'm just going to go and see. Um, And so... As I got there, I was teaching the uh, the oldest kids for the English class, but they also gave everybody a small group that they had us lead after they had their service time. Um, and they gave me the youngest group. They tried to mix it up, so people were working with lots of different kids. Um, and because their English level was the lowest, I also got to work with our translator, Laylee. Um, and so the two of us were leading this class of 12 to 14-year-old girls every night after the service. and. The more I talked with these girls, I realized how they had just had no experience with the church or what meeting a Christian, um, knowing what that was like. And so Laylee um, and I would talk with them, and we would say, you know how you care about your friends and if your friend is hurting, You care about your friend, and you want to help your friend. And we said that God feels the same way about you, that God cares about you, and he wants to help you. And they had never heard anything like that before um, in their lives. And it was just so eye-opening for me to see how really how deep the darkness is in East Germany and in these former Soviet areas. And I was just really blessed to see how God just helps Laylee and I to share our stories and share how God had worked in our own lives and how things that I just take for granted. And I thought as little simple things that everybody knows that, that it was new to them and it was surprising to them. Um, And I left the camp just feeling really amazed by how God was able to use me with these kids in ways that I didn't expect and I didn't think that I had the skill set to do. Um, But he just really gave me what to say in all of those moments.
2: Thanks, Elise. So if you're interested in learning more about English Camp, potentially coming on the trip, we're having an information meeting after the ministry fair next week. It's up on screen there. Um, We'll talk about what the day-to-day camp looks like. We'll talk about the different roles. Annalise mentioned English teacher, but we also have needs for Bible teachers, for cooks, for counselors, activities, worship arts, all of lots of different jobs and roles to uh, to fill with that. So come on out, bring questions uh, for the information meeting. This is a camp uh, with teenagers, so it's early mornings, late nights, um, intentional time, like Annalise was saying you may be teaching a class, but you're also expected to, to mingle and, and have conversations with the students. Um, so if that isn't necessarily your gifting, but still want to support the trip, there's lots of different ways, prayer, giving financially, and then helping us prepare uh, for the trip as well. There is an application that we'll release or uh, we'll have available after the information uh, meeting next week. Otherwise, come find me if you have any questions. Uh, ben Carey will actually be here next week at the ministry fair as well, out at the Operation Missions table with me to help answer any questions pre the information meeting as well. Um, so we'll be praying uh, over our entire church body here as you guys consider uh, partnering with us to staff English camp in Germany this summer. Before we get back into worship, let's stand and say hello this morning.
4: what he does right here. an image, right? Yes. Graves into gardens. Bones into armies. When we think about what God can do. It's a lot, right? Amen. Oh, it's so much more than what we just sing about too. Mm. Ah. These next few moments here. Just breathe that in. Just breathe in what God has done for you. Just think about all he's done for you. I'll tell you what, what has God done for you? Shout it out. I'm gonna hear it. Freedom. 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 Oh. Freedom. Freedom. Shout out so everybody can hear you. Come on, testify. Let's go. What you got. right now is so tangible your spirit is so present father and I pray that we would continue worshiping you this morning that may we continue to be attentive to your word may each and every day may you draw us closer and closer to you and to your heart may we be ever aware of your presence in our lives you're always there. We welcome you in, Father. We welcome you in now. Teach us, Lord, as we continue to worship you. The studying of your word through the giving of the offering, Lord, I pray we continue to worship you in everything that we do this morning here as one body. What a unique and wonderful experience it is to worship you like this we not take it for granted. Lord, we love you. We give you all the praise and all the glory for all the things you've done for us, all the things you're doing and all the things you will do, Lord. But above everything, we give you praise because you are worthy, because you are God. We love you. It's in your holy and precious name that all God's people prayed. Amen. Man, It's like I, amen. As yes, you've got a hand to praise this morning, amen. God is good. Amen. Amen. As we continue to worship, I just want to encourage you to go and take those buckets and please pass them. If you are a guest here, let those buckets just pass right by you. We're, the whole point of offering is that we continue to worship together. That's an, it's, an, it's a continued act of worship for us as a church.
5: This morning, we're uh, missing about 75 of our high school students and uh, their leaders that are not with us this morning. They've been off at a retreat uh, in Michigan this weekend, and so I uh, want to be praying for them as they're, be, they're likely heading back uh, as we speak, and so uh, very excited uh, uh, for all that God has been doing in them this weekend. I know our middle schoolers had something as well with Pastor Dan uh, this weekend and uh, had a really great time. So, uh, just excited about what God is doing there. You know, one of the things that's been encouraging to me is that um, I've been meeting so many new people at our church over the past many weeks, and if I've not had the opportunity to meet you, I would love that opportunity if you are new here to Westgate, uh, but I did have the opportunity to meet one new person in, in, uh, in particular this past Tuesday that was so, so cool, uh, young man by the name of Leo David Ward. Anybody met him? Yes yes now you may be what in the world is he talking about but our outreach admissions director uh and her incredible husband who was leading us in worship this morning uh julianne and david had their baby this past tuesday morning and uh leo david ward is doing well mama and baby and i guess father as well as you saw him this morning so please be sure to congratulate them when you see them he is the cutest bundle of joy so i uh, can't wait for you all to get the opportunity to uh to meet him as well um This morning, uh, before we jump into our uh, message, uh, and if you have your Bibles, I'll, I'll give you a head start. We've been in Exodus chapter 20 together, so flip there in your Bibles, and if you got your sermon notes, you can pull those out. Uh, those are We produce those and give those to you every single week as just a way not only to follow along, but man, as the Lord is speaking to your heart, if he's saying something to you, it's a good place to write it down and use those notes to revisit it during the week with him. And so uh, hopefully that will be uh, just a useful tool for you. Uh, but as you're turning in your Bibles and doing that, I want to do something this morning that we're going to actually do together uh, over the next. Many weeks, and that's to have what we're what I call a small, just vision moment. As you know, we are going through a five-year vision together entitled "Deep Roots and Broad Reach," where uh, we feel that God has given us a very clear vision for how we, as a church, can grow deeper in relationship with Him and with each other, but also then also expanding our reach and having a broad reach uh, in our neighborhoods, our workplaces, schools, and in our community, and truly around the world uh, for the gospel. And you may have noticed. over uh, the past many weeks, that we have the background to that series we started in September is now a wall across from the cafe. You guys are like, "Wow, they really just love the nature look, you know, at church." And we've put that up because what we're actually creating, and hopefully will be uh, closer to completion in the next two weeks, is a vision wall where we are going to continually, over the next five years, be updating that wall with information about what God is doing in our church, how things are going when it comes to reaching the goals that He has given to. us, but also using it to share testimonies of how he is changing and transforming our lives and our hearts as we follow him. And so I hope that that will be an encouragement to you to see regularly. Uh, But this morning, when it relates to our vision, one of the things that we have been working on for uh, a fair amount of time has been the uh, refresh of our worship center here. And uh, it is part of what we believe uh, as we... Uh, began this project with our Unfinished Generosity Initiative. Uh, One of the things is that we really want to be able to update this worship center in such a way that it is a place that is welcoming for people for years and years to come, to come and to hear uh, and know about Jesus. And so I want to share an update on that with you this morning. Uh, As you know, we have about, uh, I believe, $450,000 that has been raised so far that is sitting in an account for that project. And uh, as we had shared with you at the beginning of the year, actually before the beginning of the year, back in September, uh, that we still had funds that needed to be raised, but one of the reasons we weren't able to move on the project as originally planned was because of the high inflation. Well, as uh, funds have continued to come in and we have also seen that uh, inflation is coming down in some specific areas, I wanted to let you know that we are actually going to begin the work on the worship center in the next two weeks, and we're very, very excited about that. Uh, The first phase that we're going to begin working on is the uh, painting of uh, our worship center and also the putting up of two crosses that you'll see in the picture that is up on the screen. Uh, These are renditions that were done by the uh, builder that is helping us. And uh, so in two weeks, I believe, we're going to start doing drywall and painting in this room. It should last about a week time. There may be uh, a Sunday where we're worshiping with a large boom in the middle of the room. but we'll still worship around it, amen, all right? So uh, you may see that as as work is going on, but we're excited to jump into phase one. What encourages me the most is that somewhere, this is, it's actually phase one is going to be somewhere around mm, $70,000 less than we thought. That's significant, praise God, right? Um, Very, very exciting. Uh, But as resources continue to come in, we are also now moving on to getting firm quotes for phase number two, which is the redoing of our platform and stage. Uh, You can barely kind of see it in this picture up here, but one of the things we're going to be doing is extending the stage out because you guys are so far from me. And in first service, they like to sit in the back rows. So I've got to be able to get out a little bit further. We're going to be kind of rounding it out and moving it out a little bit further, putting up some lighting so we can actually light this area well on the live stream. I am always in the dark if I stand there. So we've got a couple things that are going to happen with that. Uh, We think we'll have the quotes nailed down in about four weeks. And then uh, hopefully uh, we'll be able to move on that because we do have the resources to do that. The final phase, phase three is the one that everybody's hearts are hoping for, which is no more mauve on the, on the carpet are in the pews, and uh, we do still have funds that need to be raised. We are going to be looking at uh, what are the quotes now for that as material costs have come down. We believe, though, there is a, a probability that we still need to raise about 200 dollars to $250,000 in order to complete phase three as a church. And so uh, what I want you to hear me say is, uh, as you continue to give and give faithfully, even above and beyond your tithe uh, to the Broad Reach Fund, it is helping us to accomplish that goal. Um, there are some things in the next few weeks as I give updates on our finances, uh, there are some cool things that are coming down the pipe. that are going to help us to close that gap significantly to be able to get this project done. So uh, just all of that, I want you to be updated. We are beginning to move and beginning to do this project and prayerfully praying that God is going to provide. And I want to make abundantly clear, we will not take debt to do the job. Okay. So we will, we will make sure that the resources are here and that God has provided before we move into each phase. So, there you go. That's a quick vision moment. Together, we're going to do these again about some awesome things that God is doing with ministries, talking about our finances over the weeks to come, and uh, I'm just excited to keep sharing with you what God is doing. So, before we uh, continue, let's pray again and give our hearts to the Lord as we get into his word. Lord, uh, we're here this morning to worship you. Uh, We come in so easily at times with things on our minds and our hearts that cloud our thoughts, distract us, Father, from focusing on you burdens that we carry, hurts that we're dealing with, fears that we have. And to be quite honest, Lord, at times it's just the busyness of our lives when we walk out of this room. Thank you, Lord, that you give us this time each week to Sabbath with you, to pause, to rest, and to worship you. And I pray that you would help us and enable us this morning to do just that. Thank you for this sweet time of worship and song as we're reminded, Father, of your faithfulness to us. And Lord, would you continue to draw our hearts in as we get into your word, that Lord, your word and that your spirit would be transforming our hearts as we turn to you. We give you thanks. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, as I said, we're in Exodus chapter 20, and if you have got your Bibles, uh, you'll want to be turned there, but we have been going through a series together entitled Guardrails, looking at the Ten Commandments together. And as we've done this series, uh, we began by saying that there are a couple of purposes to the Ten Commandments. I want to remind you of those as as we continue along this morning. Number one is this in your notes, what is the purpose of the Ten Commandments? The first thing we talked about is that they are, they are meant to point to God's plan for human flourishing. As we look at these, they are meant to point to God's plan for human flourishing. We've talked about from the beginning of this series, and you'll hear me say it often because I think it's important for us to understand the context of our walk with God. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden did what all of us do every single day. They believed that they could do life better without God. They made a plan to try in their own strength and their own power to find the fulfillment, the hope, and the desire that they had always longed for. And in so doing, they sinned against God by rejecting him and following their own way. It is the plight of all humanity. We wrestle with this personally and feel it every single day. And the point that was here within the Ten Commandments, as God's people no doubt struggled with this, was to show them the depth of their need for a Savior. The whole purpose of the law was to become very aware of our sinfulness and our fallenness, to point us to God, but not just to point us to our need for a Savior, but to show us that there was a better way. You see, the Ten Commandments are meant to promote holiness among God's people, holiness that would lead to a right relationship with him, and then also promote our flourishing in a broken world as we give our hearts to God. Secondly, the purpose is this, that we would be image bearers of the living God to the world. The Ten Commandments, one of the great things that they do when you read them is they actually reveal to us the very character of God. By reading them, we understand who he is and also what he desires for us. And even more specifically, they reveal to us the depth of the holiness of God, but also his design for our holiness to be set apart to him so that we would be a representation of him to the world that surrounds us. It's not that we become perfect. It's not that we hold to them perfectly. That's why we need a savior. That's why we need Jesus. But we strive for this holiness and honoring God so that the world would know the one true God. And we've seen this as we've walked through these together. Uh, Over the past many weeks, we've talked about the fact that the Ten Commandments tell us, you shall have no other gods before me. You shouldn't make any images in the likeness of God or make other man-made gods and worship them. We shouldn't be taking the name of the Lord in vain. In other words, uh, we need to be lifting up the name of God, not bringing it down to a low place. Uh, We've talked about how the Lord instituted the Sabbath as a day for rest and for worship that was good, that... That encourages our flourishing, not only as humans, but especially as followers of God. And last week, Pastor Steve shared with us about how we need to honor our father and mother and God's plan for our flourishing within that. And this morning, we come to a very deep text of scripture. If you have your Bibles, Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, it's going to take a while to read, so, so bear in with me. You shall not murder. Now, I know what you're thinking. We're getting out early for lunch today, right? How in the world could he preach a long sermon on just four words? By the way, only two words in the, uh, in the uh, original Hebrew, which mean not murder, right? There's no way Pastor Rob could go long. Ask the first service people. All right, here we go. Four words. This morning, as we dive into this, I want us to begin We look at this and we read, you shall not murder, and we think to ourselves, this is an easy one, Pastor Rob, you can't screw this up, and you should be able to get us out of here quick. And we've all got this one down, right? I mean, how many people have killed somebody this week? (laughs) Okay, good. (laughs) Feeling safer. Um, I feel like we're doing good on this, but there's something we really need to look at. So, first things first. What is the meaning of murder? Murder. The, the uh, Hebrew word here, "rasah," meant this. And uh, I've changed it. You'll see up on the screen here. I want you to cross off the word kill in that first fill-in, and I want you to write the word take. It's actually a better, more literal translation that this word meant to take innocent life. In other words, there's a difference between murder and the general word of killing. Murder was used more specifically in Scripture, this this Hebrew word, and there's another Hebrew word for kill, which is more encompassing. And that'll help us as we seek to define it. As we define it, though, the idea of murder is to take innocent life. And it seems to go without saying in most cases that we believe that murder is wrong. This is also the very reason that in the church, when we talk about valuing life, we're not just talking about not killing someone Uh, who has angered you, but it's the very reason that as Christ's church that we value life in the womb itself. When we read Psalm 139, it tells us this, that God is intricately involved in forming all of us in our mother's wombs, that he has purpose for us, and that he values each and every life before it is born into this world. To take innocent human life, whether it's out of anger, or inconvenience is an affront to the very image of God who has created us in his own image and who, whose hands are intricately involved in the forming of who we are from the very moment of conception. As we think about this, it's the reason that we as a church stand on this belief in this value when we talk about valuing life and not taking innocent life. But one of the things that we also need to define is this truth, is that there are some things that this commandment did not prohibit. Your next fill-in is this, is as we look in Scripture, this commandment of do not murder did not prohibit self-defense. It didn't prohibit self-defense. If you look at Exodus chapter 22, verses 2 through 3, just a couple chapters later, it says this. It says, if a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. In other words, if somebody breaks into your home and your life is threatened, as, as one of God's people, if you ended up having to kill that person in self-defense, it was allowable. But what's interesting when we read this, where it says, but if the sun has risen on him, like, what does that mean, right? The idea behind it is this, is that if you could see what was happening, if your life wasn't in danger, if you could identify the individual and Concerned that killing wasn't necessary, but you still did it, then you were guilty of murder. Uh, in other words, it also prohibited vigilante justice. If someone broke into your home and you went and found them later and killed them, and your life hadn't been in danger, that that was considered to be wrong. But it, what it shows us is that one of the prohibitions was, uh, was, the, was self-defense. The other thing is this, is that in the meaning of murder, it didn't prohibit capital punishment. In Genesis chapter nine, verse six, we read, it says this, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it from man, from his fellow man. I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. As we read here, God's people would have understood that this commandment also did not prohibit capital punishment. Capital punishment for murder was not considered an assault on the image of God, but actually a defense of his image. Human life is so precious that the taking of it was considered to, to need to be punished severely. And the principle was rightly regulated to governing authorities. We see this not only in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament. In Romans 13:4, where Paul says that the governing authorities are God's servants for good, but also avengers to carry out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And so when we think about murder, there is a prohibited self-defense, or I'm sorry, it did not prohibit self-defense. It did not prohibit capital punishment, but it also did not prohibit warfare. And when we talk about warfare, one of the things that we think is this, is that peace, when it comes to war, is always the goal. But war was and is at times necessary to defend peace. When Jesus encountered the Roman centurion, I want you to think about this in the New Testament. He did not tell him, go and sin no more, and if you're really going to follow me, then you need to quit the Roman army and, and, and fall in line. Jesus didn't say that. In the book of Acts, When we read about Cornelius, who was the head of a regiment in the Roman army, what does it say about him? It says that he was called a God-fearer. When we look at John the Baptist, and, and it says that there were soldiers that were asking him what they needed to do to repent, he didn't say, resign from the evil Roman army, you can't be a soldier. What he said is, do not extort money by threats or false accusations, be content with your wages, be honest, and be honorable. When we look at this and we think of this commandment in scripture of do not murder, it's not talking about self-defense. It's not talking about capital punishment. It's not talking about warfare. What is it talking about? It prohibited intentional homicide. In other words, premeditated intentional murder of innocent life. I want you to think about it with me for just a moment. Our headlines in the news, it seems like almost every single day are filled with stories of people in various cities and places around the world that are being murdered almost, not almost, every single day. And over the past few months, there's one in particular that's been pretty uh, noteworthy that I think most people have heard about, and it was the murder of four college students in a small town called Moscow, Idaho. Four college students who were uh, in a house, you'll see a picture that's up here on the screen, but they were in this small house in Moscow, Idaho, and in the middle of the night, uh, an individual came into the home and killed all four of those people, uh, stabbing them to death. And what ensued from that point was this, is that for weeks, police, investigators, the FBI went on a hunt to try to figure out who is it that did this horrible, insane murder. And as they began to find clues and get more information, it was about six weeks after the investigation began that they found their man. A guy who had been a student at a neighboring college just uh, on the other side of the border of Idaho who traveled all the way over to his home in Pennsylvania. It seems to try to hide. They followed him. They dug into his trash so that they could get DNA evidence to link him to the murder. And then, you know, they found him. He is in jail, waiting to be sentenced for the murder of four individuals. As I think about this, for weeks... It would be almost unheard of for any sane person to say that what this man did was okay. If there's one thing in our world that is universally accepted, it's our totally screwed up world. In our totally screwed up world, it's that murder is wrong, it's unacceptable, and it's deserving of harsh punishment. So what's the bottom line? Don't kill people. People, don't kill people. Write it down. The bottom line is don't kill people. If you killed people recently, don't do it again, Okay. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for this morning. Thank you for your word, which nourishes us. Thank you that we're not murderers like other people. Thank you, God, that you have... This is weird, isn't it? Are you feeling it? What are you doing? Get out of here. Go, stop playing that piano. He had me in the moment. He had me in the moment. We're not closing our service. You tried. (laughs) He really wanted to get out early. We read a commandment like do not murder, and we think to ourselves, I've got it down. It's what the religious leaders of Jesus' day thought too. I've got it. I've not killed anybody recently. Pastor Rob, I don't need to hear this sermon. Jesus speaks directly to this commandment in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me. The religious leaders of Jesus' day felt that they were perfectly following this aspect of the law as well. They weren't using their hands to take people's lives, and so they had it all together. And like most people throughout history, the scribes and the Pharisees believed that if there was one sin that they were not guilty of, it was murder. According to rabbinic traditions and to the beliefs of most cultures for that matter, Murder was strictly limited to the act of physically taking another person's life. And Jesus speaks into this in Matthew chapter five. verse. Five. He says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. It's interesting because on the surface, as we look at this and what Jesus says is he quotes this commandment on the surface, things looked really good for the religious leaders. The religious leaders and those who followed their teaching believed that righteousness that i 'm sorry that uh, believed that righteousness was an external thing and because their understanding of righteousness was about external actions and adherence to the law and even their own interpretations of the law, they had a very positive confirming view of themselves. But like we see with Jesus and kind of throughout the whole New Testament, we see that they had blind spots in their life. One passage that I think of in particular is in Luke chapter 18, verse 10, where it actually goes and helps us to see the heart of the Pharisees, but I would also venture to say at times it reveals our own hearts. The passage says this, the two men went up to the temple to pray a Pharisee and a tax collector. And as we look at the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18, He prays to God and says, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, that I am not like robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of everything that I get. As he looked at himself, he said, I've got it. This law is down pat. I'm doing it perfectly and I'm doing some really great things for you, Lord. I want you to think about this. How often do we have the same view of ourselves? That we justify sin in our lives because maybe it isn't as obvious as the person that is sitting or standing right next to us. How many times do we listen to a sermon and think to ourselves as we walk out of the room, I sure hope so and so was listening, or I think I got to send this message to somebody this week because they really need to hear it, without actually thinking about what God wants to speak into our own hearts? You know, what I find is that at times in the Christian life, we have a tendency to whitewash our sin. We have a tendency to pretend that it isn't there. And we keep it hidden out of sight. And because it isn't obvious, we have a pretty complimentary view of ourselves. But here's the deal with Pharisees and also with us. What they failed to recognize was that this sin that Jesus speaks of originates in the heart, not in the hands And this is the point that Jesus makes. There were a couple of guys that I I lived in, when I was in college at Biola, I lived for one year on campus and uh, there was a whole group of guys we lived in a quad and the room specifically directly across the hall from mine was two guys that uh, honestly, if their mothers had ever walked into their dorm room would have been horrified. I mean, I'm telling you, it was one of the nastiest pits you have ever looked at. Dirty clothes piled high on the floor. pizza boxes and McDonald's wrappers strewn all like trash just everywhere. Half eaten food still sitting on the ground. And the worst part of it was not just the way that it looked, but honestly living across the hall from them for so long, the stench that came from the room when the door was open was almost unbearable. And I'm telling you, it was awful. So awful that one day my RA, the resident assistant, came in and walked into their room and lost his ever-loving mind. Like he went, it was exactly like their mother had walked into the room. And he starts yelling at them, you guys need to get this place cleaned up. You need to take better care of this dorm room. You need to get on it or else, right? And so he left. He came back a couple of days later. And what's interesting, he was probably 20, I remember seeing this, he was about 25 feet from their door. And he could smell still the horrible smell coming from the room because the door was open. He was hot, man. He was angry. And he comes marching up to the room and, and comes in the room and completely pauses, because everything is cleaned up. The floor was spotless. There wasn't an ounce of clothing, an ounce of trash, an ounce of, the beds were made, but the stench was amazing. And what did he do? He did what most moms would do. He walked over to the closet, and he opened it up, and it all fell on him. Every piece of dirty clothing, every piece of trash, right? Uh, The half-eaten food, it was awful. Things looked clean, but the mess was just hidden out of sight. This is the point that Jesus is seeking to make. Things looked maybe really good on the outside with the religious leaders and maybe even in our own lives, But the Pharisees loved to parade their righteousness in front of other people, but on the inside, they were dead and rotting away. And what Jesus does as he continues in this passage is this, is that Jesus shatters our illusion of self-righteousness by going straight to the heart of the matter. You may think that you have it all together because you aren't committing the act of murder, but on the inside, for many people, even in the church, the very seeds of this sin have been planted and are being nurtured and allowed to multiply unencumbered. You see, because this sin originates with evil thoughts in the heart, regardless of whether or not those thoughts are acted upon. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 22. After having quoted the commandment, he says, but I tell you. Now, it's important that he says this because he's also been accused in the earlier verses of changing the law, right? Of trying to wipe away the law. And, and he says, nope, not a chance. That's not what I'm doing. I'm not changing the law. What I'm actually doing is correcting what you have distorted. And he says, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister of Raka is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, You fool will be in dangers of the fires of hell. I want us to take a look at what Jesus says here because it actually gives us the depth of instruction that we should be looking for with this commandment. The first thing he says is anyone who is angry and he he says if you have anger then I'm speaking to you. And it might bring us to a place of asking ourselves the question, well is all anger wrong? Isn't anger a natural human emotion that we feel and I would say yes you know if someone betrays you if someone tries to hurt your family somebody cuts you off in traffic and almost causes an accident a natural human response is anger but what does Paul say Paul says in your anger do not sin in other words yes it is a natural human emotion but in your anger do not sin We also see that there is an anger that the Bible talks about that we would call a righteous anger. In other words, an anger that is righteous because it is about protecting the very name of God. We might often feel this within the church when we see uh, a Christian pastor being exposed for false teaching. I think of a person like Rob Bell years ago, who was a famous uh, pastor, began to teach that there was no hell and love wins and everybody gets to go to heaven in the end. And many people in the church raised up and were like, how can you be doing this? There was this holy and righteous anger to protect the name of God and to lift him high. And we see even that Jesus in scripture, what did he do? He cleansed the temple in righteous anger for the same purpose to protect and to lift up the name of God. But this principle can often be misapplied in our world. But what I need you to understand is this, is that Jesus is not talking about anger over God's being dishonored, but rather when he says everyone who is angry, Jesus is talking about selfish anger, anger against a brother or a sister. He's talking about anger because of what's of something that someone has done to us or that irritates us or that displeases us. How would we define this in your notes? When he says everyone who is angry, this Greek word brings the idea of a simmering anger that is nurtured and not allowed to die. It's the picture of holding a grudge in a manner that refuses to forgive it's the anger that cherishes resentment and does not want reconciliation the writer of hebrews calls this having a root of bitterness and what does it look like in our lives today how do we do this i would say self-talk self-talk is one of the key ways that we do this do you know what self-talk is do you feel it Self-talk. It's when we play a situation or a conversation over and over again inside of our heads that has happened to us that brought us pain, and we play it again and again. We rehearse what we're going to say to the individual that has hurt us, how we're going to put them in their place. We justify our own unholy anger as we do this, uh, even though it's not glorifying to God. We hope that something equally as painful will happen to the person that has hurt us because of the pain that they have caused us. And oftentimes as we participate in this self-talk, we refuse to even stop and think about what I may have done wrong in the situation, how my current state of mind isn't glorifying to God, just how many times I've been forgiven by other people, especially by Christ, and that what Christ desires most is reconciliation. Self talk. You say, Pastor Rob, how did you know? How'd you read my situation the other day or how I was feeling on my way to uh, church this morning? Because I have struggled with this deeply in my life. There have been so many times where I have been angry and I find myself in a quiet place in my head, rehearsing the situation over and over again, allowing anger to have a place where it can be cultivated, which can grow into bitterness and even hatred for people. I was hurt years ago by a very deep friend and I struggled with this to the point that not only was I playing it over and over again in my head and so angry inside of my heart and having hatred, but I began to speak poorly about them to other people and began to slander them until the Lord reminded me of just how sinful I am and how much he's forgiven me. Heck, even this past week, I received an email before coming to uh, church Tuesday morning that kind of set me off. I wasn't very happy, uh, it had nothing to do with church, but I was, I was driving in and I was self-talking my entire way here and one of our staff members was leading staff prayer that morning as I got into prayer and we started to have prayer and worship together. Like literally, as Nick was playing on the keys, I couldn't even sing because I was so angry. I was letting it have that root in that place of bitterness where I was self-talking myself. And it is a sin. It is a sin to give anger that place in our lives where Satan can grab a foothold and it can grow. I understand what this is like and I understand that we walk through it, but what does Jesus say is the consequence of allowing this anger unencumbered space in our lives where it can grow? He says, you will be, the su- you will be subject to judgment. In other words, the person who harbors anger will be guilty before the court of the same penalty reserved for murderers. He continues. He says, whoever says raka, a word that was commonly used in Jesus' day, but today we don't really have an equivalent. That's why when you read your Bible, it says raka. It gives you the Greek word because we're not quite sure how to define it. But some of the idea behind it is this. It equals, if you look up on the screen, the idea of slander with uh, arrogant, um, sorry, arrogant contempt. And so oftentimes, What it means is it's a term of malicious abuse, derision, or slander. It can mean brainless idiot, worthless fellow, silly fool, empty head, blockhead, and more. And while these words sound like just like childhood things and names that would be yelled on a playground in Jesus' day, it was a word of arrogant contempt. Even David himself in the Old Testament spoke of this type of arrogant contempt and slander, saying that people who are like this sharpen their tongues as a serpent, and poison of viper is underneath their lips. And what's interesting to me is I think about how we move from a place of not only just harboring anger inside of our hearts, it often then moves to the slander of other people. And slander in our culture today has become something that is openly celebrated, and at times, even by people in the church. We see it from our politicians. It's okay to slander people. We see it on social media and in the news constantly. Maybe even ourselves on social media participating in slander. We slander with our friends openly. And for the more God-fearing people, we don't do it openly. We do it in the quiet places. We call this gossip where we speak poorly of individuals to another person in hopes of winning them over to our side. It's almost become cliche in the church, I find, to talk about gossip. We've heard about it so many times but it's become so acceptable and yet it is this slander that jesus says there are great consequences for what does he say jesus says that the consequence of this slander is uh, with arrogant contempt is is that you will be answerable to the court What he's referencing is the supreme court of that day, the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of 70 people who would have heard the worst and most heinous of crimes before them and meted out the worst punishments, often stoning because of what people did. The consequence of this was high. What does Jesus say next? Whoever says to you, you fool, which uh, is the Greek word moros. Now, please don't go out and use this Greek word, uh, but it's the equivalent of moron, okay? Okay. It's to be stupid or to be godless. And it was an attack on the very character of an individual. Do you see what's happening here? The importance of the building that Jesus is doing? To nurture anger is the basic evil behind murder. To slander a person with a term such as raka is even more evil as it vocalizes that hatred. To condemn a person's character by calling them a fool is more slanderous still. What Jesus does here is that he shatters our complacent self-righteousness by saying a person is guilty of murder. If he is angry with, if he hates, curses or maligns another person and is deserving of a murderer's punishment. Even more, what Jesus exposes and should strike right to our hearts is it's possible to be a good law-abiding citizen. It's possible to be a model citizen and to be guilty of murder as anyone on death row. It is possible for a person who has never been involved in so much as a fist fight to have a more murderous spirit than even many killers. Many people in the deepest feelings of their heart have anger and they have hatred to such a degree that their true desire is for the other person to be dead. What Jesus wants us to understand is that our sin is not just what we do with our hands, but it begins and it resides within our hearts. And that is what needs to change. And what does he say? He continues and he says, as long as we are nurturing sin, outward acts of worship are not acceptable to God. In Matthew chapter five, he makes this clear. As long as we nurture that sin in our hearts, outward acts of worship are not acceptable to God. Matthew chapter five, verse 23 to 24. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come offer your gift. He says that this is so vitally important that if you in that day found yourself in the temple offering your sacrifice for your own sin and recognize that either someone has something against you or you have something against someone else, that the most important act of worship that you could do was not to offer your sacrifice, but to get up from your place of worship, and that the best worship you could do is to go and to be reconciled to your brother or sister in Christ. It's the most important thing. And we see this instruction throughout the whole of the Old Testament. This isn't just Jesus speaking. Listen to the words of David after his great sin with Bathsheba as he begins to understand in Psalm 51 and say, you, God, do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it to you. You don't take pleasure in burned offerings. My sacrifice, God, is a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart you, O God, will not despise. In other words, God isn't interested in us sitting in this room and going through the motions week to week or even in our own time in our own homes where we go and we open up his word and we read it or we spend time praying. What he isn't interested in is just going through the motions. What he wants is our hearts, that the cleanliness of our hearts being pure before him is the thing that he desires most. Maybe we haven't murdered but it's the same thing that drives that reside within our lives. And is it something that we need to not only confess to God, but then to go and to be reconciled to another? What does he say? Get up and go and find this person and be reconciled to them. Because, final point, righteousness that is pleasing to God is righteousness that urgently seeks Reconciliation righteousness that is pleasing to God is righteousness that urgently seeks reconciliation Matthew five twenty five through 26 says very briefly settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court do it while you are still together on the way your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison truly I tell you you will not get out until you have paid the last penny What Jesus wants us to understand is that much of our sin doesn't begin in our hands. It begins in our hearts. And what God calls the religious leaders of that day to, and what he calls us to, is to be a people that are constantly examining our hearts and asking ourselves the question what is not right with God? And I venture to guess that as we read this passage this morning and we listen to the words of Jesus, that there can be much guilt that we feel. I have no doubt that in this room right now that the Holy Spirit has been speaking to someone or someones. I know that because he speaks to me. But there is anger that is being harbored in our hearts, hatred, slander that we participate in, a refusal to reconcile with people and which we are broken in relationship with. What Jesus essentially does at the end of this passage, he gives us, as I see it, three things. Number one, keep short accounts with people. Move quickly to reconciliation. Don't let things build up. It isn't pleasing to the Lord and it doesn't promote your flourishing as a follower of Jesus Christ. It actually hinders your walk with him. Number two, own your stuff. It's the kindest way I can say it. Own your stuff. We are so quick to point a finger at other people, especially when they hurt us, but we are unwilling to look at ourselves and ask God, where have I sinned against you and against another person? And if you want to create the fertile ground for reconciliation, It begins in your heart, not the other person. And finally, the most important thing, forgive the way that Christ has forgiven you. Who loved you so much that he went to a cross to die for you, even while you were still sinning against him we come to this time of communion together as a time to remember all that Christ has done for us. And guys, the reason that we do this isn't just to go through rote tradition once a month, maybe a couple times if we're lucky. It's to be reminded of the incredible love and grace of God that he has poured out on us that he also desires for you to pour out on other people. And so as we come to this time of taking communion together, I want us to take just 30 seconds to pause and to pray and to say, Holy Spirit, as David said in the Psalms, search my heart and show me if there's any offensive way in me lead me to the way everlasting. Use this time to ask God to reveal to you the area of your life that you need to submit to him this morning. We're going to sing a song of worship and we'll close with communion.
6: He's worthy of all the praise we could ever bring.
5: tells us that the night that Jesus was going to the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, that he sat there praying in the garden, pleading with God, God, please let this cup pass from me. If there is any other way, what he was about to endure because of our sin was something so horrific. Thousands of years later, you would be born, sin against him, and give your life to him and continue to sin against him, and yet he loved you so much that he gave his body to be completely broken by his creation so that we could be reconciled to God. That's the example he gives us, and that's what we remember as we take the bread together. Corinthians 11, as he gives instructions about the Lord's Supper, he says, you know, in the same way that he took the bread, he took the cup. And he said, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes again, this new covenant in his blood. What's so beautiful about that? It's meant to remind us of the call and the mission that God has given us to take the love that he has shown sacrificing his very life and that the call in our life is to go and to share that message of reconciliation with others. But can I tell you this morning, the greatest way that you share that reconciliation not just with the words of the passage this morning, but through the life of your son, Jesus Christ. The road you desire us to walk is the road of love and loving others in the way that you have loved us. And so Lord, where we struggle to do that, where we harbor anger, where we allow roots of bitterness to grow, pierce through this morning and remind us of how much you have forgiven us and how much you have loved us. And then, Father, through your Holy Spirit, give us the strength to love others in the same way and to be reconciled to them. In the same way, God, that you have reconciled us to yourself. We love you so much, Jesus. Walk with us this week. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. As we close today, uh, as always, uh, Holly is here in the front, and uh, we have our prayer team that would love the opportunity to pray with you if there are any prayer needs. And so I'd encourage you to come forward and uh, you can go to the prayer room this morning. But can I just ask you if the Lord has spoken into your heart this morning and you know that reconciliation is needed, you've been wrestling with that anger, you've been wrestling with bitterness. And I encourage you to spend time today and this week going to God and asking him to begin that process of softening your cold heart and helping you to love the way that he has loved you and look for an opportunity to go and to be reconciled to your brother or sister so that he'll receive glory. Let's serve the Lord well this week out of our love for him. God bless you, church. We'll see you next week.